Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go onto our archive on irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Today we're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Garrett Mulvenna. Garrett Mulvenna has written about Tartan Gangs in his book Tartan Gangs and Paramilitaries. He has a very good podcast series that you can follow hidden histories of the northern ireland conflict and you can also check out his website gmulvenna.wordpress.com garrett you're very welcome to the show okay thank you very much it's good to be here we'd just like to ask first because your book got an awful lot of coverage tartan gangs and paramilitaries it's a really really interesting subject and could you just tell us about that type of youth culture in belfast in the 1960s and how it sort of led into going from youth gangs into loyalist paramilitarism. Yeah, certainly. Uh, it's it's good that you mentioned the 1960s there, because I think a lot of people, when they think of this, think of the early 1970s solely. But in the 1960s, there was, like any other generation of Belfast youths, there was a lot of youth gangs in, in, in the city of Belfast, and in particular in Protestant areas. You would have had gangs like the uh, there's gang on the Shore Road, York Street called the, the Yeti. There's a gang on the Shankle called the Antol Mob. Uh, I think I was named after the guys from Wacky Races. But the uh, ironic thing about that, of course, is that although they had the comical name, one of the um, members of the Antol Mob was Lenny Murphy, a teenage Lenny Murphy, who would go on to become involved with the uh, butcher um, killings on the Shankle. So really, like any industrial city, Belfast had youth gangs. What set it apart, I suppose, was in the late 1960s, you had sectarian conflict. And a lot of the young fellows I would have um, been looking at in my research were from loyalist backgrounds. Trying to find out the origins of a youth gang in any city can be problematic. I know reading a book about um, youth gangs in Dundee, they all wore different cycling tops. And the author who interviewed a lot of these guys who were around in the 70s, Basically, he was trying to find out who was the first to adopt this look, and he basically came to the conclusion that it would be better for some of the guys to meet up themselves and thrash it out in the pub over a pint. So, luckily, I was able to reach a consensus. There was a story that Gusty Spence's nephew, the loyalist leader, Gusty Spence, was obviously imprisoned at that stage for the shooting of Malvern Street. His nephew, Frankie Curry, who went on to become a prominent member of the Red Hunt Commando during the Troubles, as a teenager in the late 60s, he was in Glasgow with a couple of friends over for a Rangers game at Ibrox. Um, when they were in Glasgow City Centre, Frankie Curry and a couple of other guys decided to go on a sort of shoplifting spree. Uh, they went into one of these sort of tacky Scottish souvenir shops and stole a tin. And when they opened it, it was full of Burberry scarves. So they decided to wear these scarves. And when they went back to the Shankle Road for the Linfield match the following week, uh, the meet up in the Crown Sticker Hall. Frankie Curry and his friends would, would have been in a gang called the Shankle Young Team. And obviously, you had the young teams in Glasgow. But when they came in wearing these Burberry cards, some of the older fellas said, Oh, look, here's the Shankle Young Tartan. And it just dovetailed from there, really. You had the Shankle Young Tartan. And then obviously, with guys working in the, the shipyard and rope works and places like that, and meeting guys from East Belfast and beyond, it sort of proliferated from there really and you had the Woodstock Tartan and East Belfast, Craigie Tartan, Donegal Pass Tartan, Rathcool Kai, all sorts of gangs and eventually these gangs 
because of the era that they had developed in, in the late 60s, early 70s, it became almost ready-made for, for the paramilitary organizations, which were beginning to emerge at the time. And Gareth, do you think that there's like a logical connection between um, this youth subculture, you know, football hooliganism, tartan gangs? Do you think there was a predisposition towards kind of violence in this youth subculture, or was it just the political circumstances that came along? No, certainly it was, it was a predisposition to violence because a lot of the, the gang identity, although it sort of came to the fore in the, in the early troubles, it, it predated the works of the violence. And I think, thinking of uh, one of the guys I interviewed, who Robert Niblock, Dino Niblock, who went on to write a couple of successful plays, and one, one of them was about the Tartan. He was a member of the Woodstock Tartan, but before they became the Woodstock Tartan, they were called the Young Hayton. And when I asked him about that name, um, I asked him if it had anything to do with the Woodstock Road and East Belfast, he just said no, it was just a nonsensical name, like uh, you would have in any street gang anywhere. So these guys basically, you know, it was all about fighting over territory. There was on the Shankle before the wee bit in April 1971, one of the first mentions of Tartan is on the front of the uh, Belfast newsletter. And the article headline is Belfast Gang Warfare is New Threat to Peace. It's an article about the Tartan gangs, Shankle, Young Tartan, and the Rats, who were from the Black Pad part of the the Shankle, and these were two Protestant youth gangs who were fighting it out amongst each other with bicycle chains and all sorts of uh, makeshift weapons. So it was all to do with territory, young guys fighting, as, as is the case in any industrialised city in the UK or Ireland. I mean, you know, some of the gangs in, in the south of Ireland are notorious. I'm thinking about the, I think it's the Black Catholics and stuff like that. You know, I've heard a lot about the, the guys down south. So I think it, there was a predisposition to violence and one of the sort of perfect storms really was the fact that a lot of these guys supported Linfield so when they were coming back from the Linfield game to the Jankle, they'd be cutting across Millfield which is in Belfast city centre uh, just at the bottom of the falls of Jankle Road and they'd have to go past the Indy Flats complex which was part of Carrick Hill which was a mainly nationalist Catholic Republican area at the bottom of the Jankle between the Jankle and the city centre and there was a lot of to and fro in there you know in 1969 uh, I think one of the Orange Marches had been attacked at Unity Flats, but the people in Unity Flats would rightfully say as well that they were goaded, and, you know, you had Linfield fans. Billy Hutchinson's told me himself in the book they were working on that one of the things they would do is they would stop outside Unity Flats and sing both of the Queen just to basically wind people up. So there was a lot of that sort of youthful naivety and uh, a predisposition to violence. So it didn't run very different to what was going on and say, England at the time, where you had the Manchester United hooligan firms that were really notorious at the time. So, yeah, it was just a sort of general youth subculture thing. And was this replicated on the nationalist side in terms of, like, gangs with specific names and maybe, I was going to say specific costumes, but different things yeah. that they'd wear that would identify themselves as a particular gang? Yeah, definitely. Going back to the uh, sort of late 19th century, Thomas Carnduff of his experiences of being in a gang. He was the gang called the Pass Clan. And I think one of the ones he talked about is uh, when the relief of Ladysmith occurred, and the Catholics and Protestants came out and fought each other. And he names a series of gangs from, from different areas. So some of these were obviously Catholic gangs as well. And I mentioned there earlier in the 1960s, one of the notorious Protestant youth gangs was the Yeti, 
and I mean, a lot of these guys would have been. I'm trying to think, really, they would have been, you know, in the sort of mod scene, the immersion mod scene. Some of them would have been rockers, that type of thing. So you had those ordinary divisions. But one of the biggest rivals of the Yeti was the Nurks from Nathan off the Antrim Road. And that would have been a mainly Catholic gang. And as far as I know, a lot of the Nurks would have gone on to become members of the Fena. So there was that replication of the rituals on the other side. The problem I had. I put a call out when I was doing the Tartan book. I put a call out with Danny Morrison, who was very helpful. He tried to find out more about these gangs. I'd heard that there was Catholic Tartan gangs, there was the Devitz Tartan, and a couple of others. Actually, it just, it's just coming to my head. My, my partner is from Twinbrook originally, and I was at a family do recently where one of her uncles said to me, now, what about the Anderson Town Tartan or the Abbey Town Tartan? You have to hear about them. And, of course, I want to hear about them, but once I started asking questions, people just sort of shut up shop. And people have asked me about this, and, you know, I can't speak with any authority, but my gut feeling is that Republicans are less inclined to talk about the gang culture, which predated some of the paramilitary activity in their side, because it delegitimizes the political ethos behind Republican violence. Whereas loyalists are much more upfront about how this was a way of maybe getting their frustration of things. And it was an organic sort of thing, way of unleashing violence on the other side before they could get their hands on guns and, and that type of thing. So I think there's, I'm not saying that you know, people who were in Republican youth gangs are you know, reticent specifically for that point or for that reason, but it's my intuition because. I can't work out any other reason why nobody would talk about their involvement in gangs, which obviously existed. Yeah, I think, like, historically, you know, Republicans in Belfast, and this is going back to the 1920s, were always reluctant to admit that they were on the side of what they call the Catholic mob. You know, they yeah they projected themselves as soldiers of the Republic, and they they weren't, you know, they were reluctant to acknowledge that they were engaged in kind of down-and-dirty sectarian territorial stuff. Yeah. Yep, big time. That would tie in with my thoughts, but I wouldn't want to say anything definitively about the 1960s, 1970s period. But what I would say is if anybody's listening to this and had experiences of being in you know, one of the Catholic or Republican youth gangs, I'd love to talk to them because I think really youth culture, apart from Desmond Bell's book, Active Union, there's been very little written on youth culture in the North and how it collides with the Troubles. I think Desmond Bell and myself stand out as the only two who've really tackled that issue. But really, there's a lot of interactions over the years. And I think even throughout the 20th century, it would make for an absolutely fascinating study. But, you know, it's it's all about trying to get people to talk. And unfortunately, some people are more inclined to talk than others. I mean, obviously, the, the history of Northern Ireland troubles is very polarized and there's no agreed kind of narrative. Um, so I yeah. think the best way to move the conversation on is what's the narrative of how among these guys, of how they became involved in, in loyalist paramilitarism at the start of the Troubles? Basically, from the people I spoke to, I mean, it's a bit like, we've been talking about this recently, a few of the guys I talked to, it's that whole idea, you know, if six people are standing at the side of the road and there's a car crash, you're going to get six different versions of, of what happened. So for me, really, to go back to the original genesis of the Tartan book, I, I really wanted to do a book on, on the Tartan gang specifically. 
I always felt that it was an interesting footnote in terms of Trouble's historiography, but that there could be much more to be understood. Thankfully, that proved to be the case. But in the early conversations I had with Robert Nimblock, who I mentioned earlier, he actually said to me, he, he joined the Red Hat Commando in July 1972 in East Belfast in a, a, a smaller group within the Woodstock Parton. He actually said to me very early on in the research, I was talking to a couple of guys, one who would have been close to the Shankill Defence Association, John McGeeg. Now, it's unlikely that he'll talk, but I'll put it to him and we'll see what happens. Thankfully, that guy did talk, and that was Ronnie McCulloch, who not many people know, and I still don't think many people know, despite the fact that the book's been out for four years. But Ronnie McCulloch was a young man who just turned 18 in June 1970, who was the person who founded the Red Hand Commando. Now, talking to Ronnie McCulloch, his discussions with people of his age, 17, 18, had been going back as far as 1969 about what to do at the at what they perceived to be the sort of rise of Republican violence. And it was after the White Rock Parade was attacked on the Crumlin Road in June 1970. Ronnie McCulloch met up with a few other loyalists of his age in his mother's parlour room in his house in the Old Park Road. And they decided to form what, what was ultimately the Red Hand Commando. Didn't have a name at that time, but it was known as the Red Hand Group or the Red Hand Commando Unit of the UVF eventually. That's one experience. I think Ronnie's experience was certainly calcified by what happened around the time of internment in August 1971, when he had blast bombs thrown at his house. Himself and his mother were one of the only Protestant houses in a Catholic area due to population movements in, in August 1971. So he had to sort of get a, a flatbed lorry and move to Silvio Street on the Shankle. Now, that's one reason. Other reasons would be personal. Uh, I know one guy who was studying to become an architect from the Donegal Pass area who gravitated from the past Tartan to the Young Citizen Volunteers after two of his friends lost their way after a disco in the Shankle and wandered into the Catholic part of Ardoin and were stopped by provisional IRA personnel. One of them was shot in the head and survived with brain damage and the other one was shot dead. So these sort of things leave their mark on people, but also there's the general frustrations at the time, the feeling that the British government weren't doing anything to stop the IRA. And again, this is all stuff I've heard. It's not me speaking as an analysis. It's, it's what people have told me. So the fact that the British government weren't doing enough to, to, to break the IRA, the fact that the British Army seemed to have their hands tied, that the RUC had been disarmed by the Hunt Report in October 1969. I think young people who had been in these gangs or on the periphery of them found it, that they were in a extremely frustrating environment where youthful energy and sort of loyalty to your, I would say loyalty to your community, but I would caveat that with loyalty to your street. It's something I find that wasn't even, you know, were loyal to Jankel, they were loyal to the street that they lived on. It's that micro level. So really, it's, it's, it's a range of reasons why people gravitated to, from gangs. But to sort of tie that up in the story and in, in the people I talked to, Ronnie McCulloch, then aged, he just turned 20 in July 1972, swore in Robert Nimblock, who was just turned 17. So these were young men recruiting other young men into organisations. 
we're just idea that I think it's an easy analysis that there was older guys preying on young fellas and manipulating them, but most of the guys I talked to, or all of the guys I talked to were ready and willing to take a step up from, you know, uh, using bicycle chains or whatever to picking up a gun. Well, it's interesting there, as you mentioned, older guys, and one of the, the more unusual characters at uh, that period in the trouble is John McCaig, yeah. sort of springs up when you're talking about the Red Hand Commandos. It's hard to know how much is true and how much is myth about his life mm-hmm. but have many of the people involved discussed him and his role personally Tom McKeague was another interesting character who obviously had read a fair bit about but not really anything in depth you know and it, it, it tended to frustrate me not from the fact that I ever thought that I wanted to defend Tom McKeague but I think as a historian, you have to look to set the record straight where, where possible. And one of the, one of the things that John McCaig was always linked to was the murder of a young East Belfast Protestant boy called Brian McDermott in 1973. And like Brian McDermott's murder, I'm not sure if you know about it, but it was a particularly gruesome murder. I think he was 10 years old. He'd gone missing in Ormo Park. And a few days later, his dismembered body and, and burned body found in a sack in the River Lagan. Now, military intelligence apparently passed around the document linking McCaig to this gruesome uh, and horrific murder. Martin Dillon, for example, in The Shankle Butchers mentioned this as something that he'd heard from military intelligence. Now, the thing that really, and again, this isn't to defend John McCaig, but the, the bold facts are that John McCaig was interned in February 73 and wasn't released from Long Cash until 75. So it would, would have been impossible for him to evolve this murder. But I think particularly in loyalism, certain individuals are convenient hook to hang your hat on because John McCaig, I mean, one of the first times I spoke to somebody who was close to John McCaig, would have been very close to John McCaig at the, at the beginning of the Red Hand Commando. I was just having a conversation over a couple of pints. I said, you know, obviously I'd like to know more about John, but you know, I'm not going to be going to defend him given what he was involved in in terms of and the guy said to me, in terms of what? And I, I said, well, in terms of the you know, sort of romper rooms and mutilations and that type of thing. And he said, John was never involved in any of that. He said, certainly John would have carried a gun, but he was never involved in any of that sort of stuff. So I don't know where these rumors start and where they end. Sometimes my feeling is you just have to listen to what people say, put it out as a matter of record of what they've said and give people the chance to make up their own minds. But I certainly I, th- I certainly think it's interesting to hear about John McCaig from people who knew him very well right up until he died rather than a military intelligence document which has been passed off and discredited. Uh, which gets the dates wrong, but John, yeah, I mean, John's a fascinating character. I mean, he, he was always a footnote, but I think what I've tried to do is, is sort of bring him to the fore of the historiography because for a guy who was so pivotal in the reformation of the UVF in the 1960s and the ultra Protestant volunteers with Paisley initially and, and the sort of false flag explosions around that time in the late 1960s, right through to the 1970s with the Red Hand Commando. Then he, he goes through some sort of Damascene conversion where 
he starts touting ultra independence. I mean, a lot of the interviews that people may have not looked at that John McKay gave in the late 1970s when he was uh, promoting ultra independence are very interesting because although he, he blames the Catholic Church in, in a less crude way than he would have done in the early 70s, he blames the Catholic Church for blocking integrated education, but he also blames Britain meddling in Northern Ireland. He's basically saying that Catholics aren't getting a good deal, Protestants aren't getting a good deal from what's happened over the last 10 years. Maybe it's time we all came together and, and looked at an independent ulster. So, and, and, and just talking to people about John, he's certainly a more more than a one-dimensional character. Yeah, to maybe address the point that people are waiting for. Obviously, John John was gay, there's no doubt about it. Talking to people like Jeffrey Dungeon, other people who knew John, there's no, no doubt that he was gay. But the young guys I talked to who were involved in the Red Hand, never had any... I mean, some of the commentaries on the cake, I'm thinking of this like the Village magazine, recent articles about Mike Batten and all this type of stuff. They basically describe McCaig as a child rapist. And, I mean, I don't know if there's evidence for that, but certainly any of the young people I've talked to were never subject to these advances. They knew that McCaig was gay. If they weren't, if they weren't sure if he was gay, they certainly knew that he was a bit effeminate. But all of them would, would say to me that, well, if this was the year 2020 and John was around, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But I think with Concora, with the rumours around Concora, the unionist politicians, loyalist politicians, McKeague's name is always going to be dropped in inevitably. But I'm not entirely convinced that he was the the predatory. Well, he certainly wasn't a child rapist. He might have had a preference for young men, but he didn't. He certainly, from what I know, he didn't have any predilection for boys or anything that would be illegal nowadays. But certainly illegal in those days. But then that just shows how, in my opinion, how moral values have maybe advanced slightly, or a wee bit since the nineteen sixties, seventies. But there's a lot of rumours about John and, and about about the person that he is. And I think he's like Johnny Adair and people like that. You know. It's, it makes for a good news story without ever getting into the bones of who the actual person was. And that's, that's whether I'm looking at loyalists or any other type of human being, I'm always interested in getting to the crux of who they were behind the mask, really, what, what they were like as, as human beings and what motivated them beyond the, beyond the headlines. If we can return to, you know, the, the young guys who started off in the Tartan Gangs and yeah. in 1971, their perception, as you've described it, Gareth, you know, yeah. was that their, their community was, was under attack and that they were powerless to defend themselves, the forces of the state were powerless. But how did they progress from that to assassination, bombing, you know, killing a lot of innocent people? The transition would be different depending on who you're talking to. Somebody like Ronnie McCulloch, who wasn't in one of the Tartan gangs, he and his friends decided to take matters into their own hands. Uh, he talks about when he moved to Silvio Street, meeting the local vigilantes there. Yeah, it would have been the autumn of 1971. One of the local vigilantes said, look, I hope you don't mind, but we all do our turn at the interface here. Do you fancy helping out? And he said, certainly, what do you have? And one of the guys produced a billiard ball sock. The guy said to Ronnie, uh, what do you have? And he said, I've got this pistol and a military grenade. So there was already stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of organising. But I think, you know... There's certainly an overlap, I'd say, between the Tartan gangs and the paramilitaries. A lot of the young fellows who were in Tartan gangs were self-starters. 
thinking about the current work I'm doing with Billy Hutchinson, or he would have become involved in the organization of the Young Citizen Volunteers in 1972. Himself and a group of friends would have been involved in a group called the Young Ulster Volunteers. I, I think there may have been an overlap with the Tartan, but from his perspective, it was that frustration that the IRA were coming in, blowing up places like the Four Step Inn. Then you have the horrific bombing of McGurk's in between that and the bombing of the Balmoral Furniture Show in December 1971. So a lot of the Tartan guys are self-starters who see these things happening in their community. On the UDA side of things, the bombing of the Balmoral Furniture Showroom was the trigger for a guy called Twister McQuiston from Highfield. Well, he was in the Ulster Boot Boys in the Highfield estate, and his father was a local commander of the UDA in the Highfield estate. And the, the very next day, the Sunday after the Balmoral Furniture Showroom bombing in December 71, himself and his friends all signed up to the junior UDA. Now, one of the interesting things there is that his father took all their uh, the scarves off the, the boot boys and said, basically, you're not in this gang anymore. You're paramilitaries. There's no time for messing around like this. But they were keen to keep that identity. And it, it's strange because... Even now, when you talk to some guys, they, they talk about that identity as the primary layer, whereas the other paramilitary layer would be secondary. Not in a lot of cases, but in some cases, which I think is interesting because it shows that their loyalty comes from what they were doing before they joined the paramilitary organization. But, I mean, again, it, it just goes back to what I say. It depends on the person you're talking to, what, what atrocity they witnessed, what atrocity they felt had affected their community. And I dare say it's the same as people who joined the IRA. You know, people on the Republican side saw the army, you know, you had like false curfew, treating people brutally and, you know, the sense of injustice with Stormont. So young men on both sides had their, their motivating factors. Loyalists who were involved with Harton gangs, most of them talk about atrocities such as those bombings that tried the murder of the three Scottish soldiers in March 1971 and, and other events which, which sort of uh, began to boil the blood, as it were. Yeah, um, we have to be very careful here that, you know, we're, we're trying to put words in other people's mouths. You know, yeah. we're, not, we're, not, we're not polemicizing here. But the other narrative is they said they were defending Ulster and defending their communities. But the opposing narrative is that, you know, they were socialized in a sectarian state. You yeah. know, they supported them. Um, Teams like Linfield and Rangers, which at the time had quite an anti-Catholic ethos, and yeah. that they were, you know, they were the cutting edge of the sectarian state, and that they were they hated Catholics, and that's why they were doing what they were doing. How would the people you spoke to respond to that? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, I'll give you an example. Actually, um, Robert Niblock has talked quite openly over the friendships he had with Catholics before the Troubles, mainly through playing football in East Belfast. With other guys, but one of his earliest memories is after Celtic won the European Cup. One of his friends, who was a big Celtic supporter, obviously a Catholic, I think maybe from the short strand, I'd have to double check that, gave him a souvenir brochure to take home and read. Again, Robert was a, a massive Linfield fan, massive Rangers fan. His uncles were, you know, behind the formation of the Lagan Village, major supporters club in East Belfast. When one of his uncles on the mother's side of the family saw the Celtic brochure, he put it in the back of the fire. 
and burned it and told them never to bring anything like that into the house again. So obviously there are little sort of when you look back tragic maybe events in people's lives that fostered this sense of suspicion and unease and certainly Billy Hutchinson he would talk about growing up in the Shankle not really knowing of anything outside the Shankle and just growing up in that culture where obviously you had the decline of the British Empire at the time people were very staunchly proud of, of the orange culture of the effort of the First and Second World Wars, the NHS, that type of thing. But on the other hand, Billy is very open, and I think it'll come across in the book, about his father, who was a bookies clerk. He was also called William Hutchinson, and he was called Big Hutchie. He spent a lot of time on the Catholic side of, of the divide on Cooper Street, um, on the Falls Road end. He took Billy to... Uh, Clonard to go to the cinema. Um, he took him to visit Catholic friends. And one of the things Billy talked about is sort of sense of unease as a young boy when he went into these houses on the Catholic side where there was the holy pictures, the holy water, stuff that wasn't in his house or his friends' houses. And I mean, as a Catholic myself, that struck me as, as being a really interesting point because although my parents are very religious and I'm going to Mass every week, when I did up until a certain age, I certainly have aunts, or an aunt in particular on my dad's side, who had trained to become a nun, and she had a, her living room was basically like the living room Billy Hutchinson described, with these religious statues, pictures, that type of thing. And I have to say, I always find it slightly unnerving in a, in a weird kind of way. But And not to go off too much of a tangent here, but I remember going, well, I went to Christian Brothers Primary School. And one of the one of the things we used to always, well, we used to always do to, you know, sort of, I think it was just, just to entertain each other was, there was, it's ridiculous. It was ridiculous at the time. But it shows what goes on within Catholic communities with regards to the superstitious iconography thing. There was like a statue of the Virgin Mary in, in the basement of the school. And people, as eight or nine-year-olds, people would say, if you go down there, her head moves, or she looks at you, or blood comes from her eyes, all this kind of weird stuff. And another thing Billy Hutchinson said to me was that uh, one of the games they would play around this time in the 1960s as youngsters was to run up the steps of Holy Cross Church in Ardoyne and it, to make sure that if the priest came out, they could get away from the priest in time just to give themselves a bit of a thrill because the rumour was that if the priest caught you, they'd put you in the catacombs beneath the church and then transport you down to, to the south. And then again, Billy Hutchinson's mother would talk about the south being a priest-ridden state. He had aspirations to become a jockey. Billy's dad wanted to send him down south to the train to become a jockey, but the mother didn't want him going to a quote-unquote priest-ridden state. So there's an amalgamation of fears of the other. And, and then that becomes, I suppose that makes it easier to dehumanise people because another thing that will become apparent in the book with Billy Hutchinson, and I think I addressed it in part in Gangs, was the idea that they would say that Unlike the British Army, the IRA didn't wear uniforms. Although they knew who the main leaders of the IRA were, they were hard to get at. 
So the tactic was to kill innocent Catholics as a means of trying to keep uh, support for the IRA at a low. Of course, that had a tragically opposite effect. It led to a lot of innocent people being killed and, and more support for the IRA and, and just intensified the campaign. So I think it's it's a sort of uh, tragic hamster wheel, really, when you think about the, the loyalist working class experience of those young men who did get involved. A lot of them were brought up with a fear of the other. Jen made it certainly, in my opinion, easier to dehumanise Catholics. But, but one of the things, I mean, I always go back to what Plum Smith said. Plum was obviously a very deep thinker, and himself and Ronnie McCulloch and another guy were arrested for the attempted murder of a Catholic who just happened to be walking past Unity Flats the week after Bloody Sunday. And Plum Smith, in a book written by Al Barkington on, on Ulster in 1972, he just said, we would go into a Catholic area, shoot a guy, and then not think about it too much because it wasn't anything personal. And, you know, I remember having this discussion with one of the guys they interviewed, I'll not name the person, but just before I was born, I was when I was born, I, I grew up in the Cliftonville Road for a number of years. My parents lived in the Lions Avenue up in 1975. They moved to the Cliftonville in 1976 during the height of the sort of Butchers era. And I remember talking to one of these guys who was in the UVF and saying, you know, one of the tactics obviously was just to drive up and down the Cliftonville Road until you saw a Catholic and just shoot them. And the way I said it to this guy was, that could have been my dad. My dad, and I, I can have part say this, he wasn't political, he doesn't care about the United Ireland, but what would have set him apart at that stage was that he wore a pioneer pin. He never drank a drop of alcohol in his life. So, you know, just in a, in a sort of hypothetical situation, if my dad had been killed by the UVF, it would have just outlined the tragedy of, of the many other innocent people who were killed by the UVF because say a lot of them were weren't politically involved and that was warned by the fact that you know there were innocent Catholics. Although on on the other hand, without wanting to get into too controversial uh, an area, some of the loyalists are adamant that IRA, and I think this is on record in Henry MacDonald and Jim Cusack's book in the UVF, some UVF leaders are adamant that the IRA didn't always claim they're dead. So it's 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 a it's a minefield and it's a moral minefield, which it's 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 hard not to take it personally when when I begin to talk about it because obviously I come from a Catholic background, so yeah, it's 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 I think there's a lot of different motivations, but dehumanization of the other definitely a big part of it, which I think worked both ways. I think basically when people say Brits out, you know, uh, Protestant community couldn't help but take that to heart either. Well, as you say, Gareth, it must be very difficult for yourself as a researcher and a historian actually dealing with the people involved rather than, you know, reading through primary records about people who lived 100 years ago. Yeah. It's a conflict where the participants and a lot of them are still around. No, it's interesting, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. It's, my mom and dad are not political. I mean, for a while, when I was talking about my background to these guys, I was able to get off of the fact that my mom was involved with the Alliance Party from, from its inception, probably running the flag protests that that became a little bit more controversial. And it's something people don't often think about. But I've, I've certainly, I've talked to the guys that I've researched with, and they're all all very deep thinkers and very, you know, understand of my background and sensitive about 
the fact I come from a Catholic background. But, you know, I mentioned the Red Hand Commando to my mum. My mum's never read the Tartan Gang book. My um, dad read it. He did a bit of proofreading on it as well. He he was very supportive, came to the book launches, helped out. He's an accountant, or was an accountant. He's in his 80s now. Um, helped out with the, the float and that type of thing. But my mum, still, when you'd mention to her, just even the Red Hand Commando, you can still sort of see the fear in her demeanor when she when she thinks back to that time. But luckily, I was brought up in an environment where my mom taught in a Catholic. She was vice principal in a Catholic girls' school on the Fault Road. She's able to talk about what the IRA did as well, and she's critical of both sides. So, in a way, I was able to approach it from that sort of dispassionate position. But yeah, I mean, I think I've talked openly about it on the blog and some of the videos I've done recently since the lockdown and some of the creative writing I've tried to do. Certainly when you're doing this type of research, there's a lot of betrayness left in the back of your head where I've talked about this to you know guys like Bino Niblock and, and others who, who himself would be into creative writing. You know, there's a lot of stuff that sits in the back of your head when you're when you're talking about violence constantly. And you know, there's certain ways people deal with it. One of the ways I deal with it is to try and get it out with creative writing. But yeah, it is it is different to researching abstract individuals who are long dead you're you're confronting or not confronting you're sitting across the table from and, and ultimately becoming friendly with people who probably you know 40 years ago 30 years ago would have been only too well to put a bullet in your head but you no know, i think it's a sign of how that constituency particularly of guys who went through that really dark and violent 1970s period have come out the other side and they have their regrets. I've I've seen one or two very emotionally disturbed by by their um, involvement in in sectarian killings, and they deal with it in different ways. Some some deal with it with alcohol. Some deal with it in other ways, and it's just it's. I think it's and again, I, I talked about this recently. I don't go off and do much of a tangent for, for I know it's a history show, but one of the one of the legacies of this history, I think, is that I've had a lot of young fellas get in touch with me, say that their dads were involved in the UVF and either their dads passed away and the friends of the dad but want to talk about what the dad was involved in or the dad's still alive but he doesn't want to approach the subject. Some just knows that he was in jail for a long time. And I think what we're looking at there is a mental health crisis really because when I mentioned this on Twitter some, somebody came back to me and said, well the same could be said of Republican activists and of course it could be but I think when the war was over, as it were, it was easier for Republicans to reintegrate back into society with the sort of structure, with the political structure of Sinn Féin, with the cultural structure of Fela. Whereas I think on the loyalist side, we had a lot of guys getting out of jail. And although you would have had a sort of certain culture where they would have been celebrated, the larger part of the culture would have been to completely dismiss them as criminals and people who had done something wrong. So yeah, it's 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 a it's a really weird one, but yeah, I mean a lot of my research is on the Irish Civil War in 1922-23, which is obviously a lot longer ago. But what yeah. what strikes me is the difference is that there was total silence really about that, about the the ins and outs of what was done really until very, very recently. Like all the archives were yeah. closed and everything. So I mean in some ways the northern conflict is more talked about, even though there is this kind of you know uh, blockage or amnesia. Uh yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean 
there's that old saying that Northern Ireland's the conflict here, you know, studied it's been studied to death really in terms of the relative size of the country. But one of the one of the things I suppose the podcast started off like this, which you know I've changed the title of the podcast to The Troubles of the Odd to reflect some of the more creative stuff I'm looking at. But it started as a vehicle to, to hear some of these stories. And and thankfully, you know, there was interesting things came out about, you know, uh Obviously, the first episode was being on a block talking about his experiences of being a young paramilitary in the early 70s. Then you had people like Henry McDonald, the journalist, talking about, you know, his upbringing in the, the markets area and the sort of uh, really red background that he had. His father, you know, having Joe McCann in the house and just almost being blown up by the UVF as well. Then going on to become involved in the punk scene in the late 70s and Paul Burgess the same. You know, from the from the Protestant side of things, I think it's on the Twitter bio as well. You know, I always like to think I'm a good listener. Although I've talked a lot here today, I think it's important to make people feel comfortable, let them sit down and talk at their own pace, and not probe people. You know, I, I'm not an interrogator, and I think sometimes the best stories or accounts of the past come out when you give people the chance to feel comfortable and and give them room to express their feelings about the past but also I mean again you say it's been talked about a lot and you know that type of thing and it's one of the first things that struck me when I was doing the research when I was talking to people people like Eddie Kidder and Billy Hutchinson who were there when the Balmoral Furniture Showroom was blown up and when the baby was brought out in in the blanket which was just soaking blood and one of the first things I remember saying was in those conversations was obviously I'd like to talk about this as a motivating factor, but I know there's occasions we've talked about this before and thinking from my own perspective, how many times I want to talk about events that were traumatic. So I don't know. I, I don't, And that's one of the problems with legacy here. I don't think people have really taken into account the difficulties with mental health and the trickle down effect, particularly with, sons of, of combatants, uh, former combatants, and also sons and grandsons, granddaughters, daughters of victims as well. I mean, I remember Stephen Nolan doing the uh, documentary on the Shankle Butchers, and he interviewed Joseph Morrissey's daughter, Charlotte Morrissey. And I mean, it was one of the most uncomfortable pieces of television I've ever seen, locally anyway, because this is a woman who had lost her father some 35 years before, she was still traumatized when talking about it as if it had happened yesterday. But sometimes I wonder, and that's the other thing I have to be careful about with the work I'm doing and with, with Billy Hutchinson. Myself and Billy have talked about this. The way Billy wants to write his life is worse than all, but he doesn't want to rub victims' noses in it. He doesn't want to dwell on the supposed glory of being in the UVF. He doesn't want people to have to revisit the trauma of losing their loved ones, but also it's an essential part of the story, so it's hard to get around that. And, and an important part of that was, I remember one of the first things Billy said to me was, I want you to write a preface to the book where you basically make clear that you don't agree with the large majority of what I'm saying in this book. You may be the, the instrument that is writing the book, but you don't agree with what's being said. And you know, it goes what I'm saying. I don't agree with murder. I don't agree with killing. I don't agree with picking up a gun or a bomb. And no matter what your motivation is, I, I think 
to say there. I think talking and listening is the best way to move things forward. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a mental health crisis coming down the tracks here, which could make mental health crisis at the moment look like a small fry, which it certainly isn't. Gareth, you mentioned Billy Hutchinson. I know you're working on his biography at yeah. the moment. And Billy Hutchinson is very much associated, in my memory anyway, with the peace process, eventual evolution of, of loyalism toward kind of a peaceful agreement in Northern Ireland. But what was the thinking, the political thinking of loyalists in the early 70s? Or had they evolved at all beyond kind of street defenders kind of mentality? Again, not wanting to put words into people's minds, but I think I think at the at the early stage of the troubles, the reaction was certainly Pavlovian. It was reacting to the violence that, that these guys were in the IRA violence, the you know impotence of the British Army, and, and all the stuff I talked about earlier with the police being disarmed. I think the political sort of evolution came in Long Cash, and I know uh, Tony Novosel has written a fantastic book on this topic called Northern Ireland: Lost Opportunity, the Frustrated Promise of Political Loyalism, and he talks about the evolution of political thought within the UVF and Red Hand Commando. And a lot of these guys had time to think when they went to the long cash. But, but it's important to remember also that there was people like Hugh Smith on the outside, who was an independent loyalist councillor, who then went on to become a member of the Volunteer Political Party, which was a UVS political experiment after the Ulster Workers' Council strike. And he was a UVF volunteer. There's no disguise in that fact. But he was also a socialist. So I don't think it is a contradiction to think of this pro-British stance with socialism. I don't think there is a contradiction in terms of labour politics that run through, uh, particularly somewhere like the Shankill. I mean, some of the early UVF leaders and spokespeople were, were old Northern Ireland Labour Party members, and certainly that sort of vein ran through the evolution of the UVS political thought in the 1970s and, and eventually gave birth to the British Unionist Party in the late 70s. So I think, to put it in a nutshell, I don't think there was a lot of political thinking. That's my perspective, other than a knee-jerk reaction. And that's understandable because I don't think people had a chance to sit down and think beyond defending the street or their community or their way of life. But I think as people in prison had time to think, you know, people like Billy Hutchinson, David Irvine, Martin Snodden, Eddie Kinner, Billy Mitchell, you know, uh, all the Gusty Spence, it goes without saying, these people became the nucleus of the Progressive Unionist Party and were the driving force behind the uh, peace process, the ceasefire and the peace process. But also, one of the things that comes through in Billy Hutchinson's book, and again, I was just doing a wee uh, revision to one of the parts today before it goes back to the publisher, was the, I mean, I'd, I'd completely forgotten, not forgotten, but it, you, you forget about some of the ins and outs of even supposedly recent events, 1986. Me, 1996 seems like yesterday, but it's it's a long time ago. But obviously, in February of that year, you had the IRA breaking their ceasefire. In October of that year, on the day the Progressive Union Party were going up to meet the UVF prisoners in the maze to talk about the ceasefire, which they had held. The fateful barracks, car bombs occurred. So one of the things Billy does, and I think it's important when people, I think particularly now, the days when people say, oh, wouldn't it be great if David Irvine was still up It was the UVF leadership at that time who held the rank and file back, not specifically Billy Hutchinson and David Irvine. It was the leadership who decided, look, we're not going to react to this 
whatever the IRA are doing, we're going to go down our own path. Right. Loyalism and the UVF particularly has had a far from perfect record since the ceasefires. I mean, there's been so many people within the loyalist community have been killed by the UVF. It's been a far from perfect case on both sides. But I think there always has been that tendency to look towards the labour socialist tradition within the Protestant working class of Belfast. When you go back to people like William Walker, pro-union but pro-labour. And I think that's where they take their inspiration from. But it's also important to remember that David Irvine and Billy Hutchinson, although they were pro-peace, they weren't peaceniks, and, and Billy would say that himself. And there were a few occasions when, I think particularly when you think about the Schenkel feud in 2000 and, and other periods where, where things were being stretched, where you did see that other side of, of, of those guys, particularly Billy Hutchinson. But then he had to remain true to the culture he came from because... We're talking about this. He was one of the only MLAs who's, you know, been involved in something like the feud or, 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 or that type of thing. It's not a traditional parliamentary politics. So th- I think really the, the Progressive Unionist Party have always taken that inspiration from the Labour socialist strand, but certainly in the early 70s, there was no, no such thinking on the streets. And, and, and when it was promoted in prison in, in the mid 70s, I think one of the Messages that came back from brigade staff to cut expense was just simply fuck off on a piece of paper. And that's it, because the outside was very different to what was uh, happening on the inside. Well, Gareth, as you were mentioning there, like 1996, and it's funny at our age, it doesn't seem that long ago now. <laughs> it really doesn't. You know, and it, it, it is quite a while ago. But yeah. I think for a lot of people in the South, the first time they became aware of loyalist individuals rather yeah. than like the UVF or you know the UDA was in that period and the Northern Ireland Forum and after the ceasefires and people like David Irvine and Gary McMichael and Billy Hutchinson and I remember as well during that period Liam O'Mork who did a, yeah. a whole special with David Irvine and Gary McMichael did Kenny's television show at the time speaking to loyalists about that period was there ever an idea that we need to speak to people in the South, that we need to get the loyalist message across to people in the South? Or was that ever part of their thinking at all? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, I mean, having gone through Roy Garland's book and Gusty Spence, which is basically, you know, a series of conversations with Gusty, and, and talking to Billy Hutchinson more recently, and then other people who were involved in the background in those negotiations in the mid to late 90s, and I'm thinking about somebody like Chris Hudson as well, who, who became close to the UVF leadership in terms of acting as a conduit between the, the Dublin government and the UVF brigade staff in the Shankle. I think, and it's on record, I think David Irvine might even talk about it in Voices from the Grave. There's more trust for the Dublin government, or at least a better working relationship between those guys and the Dublin government in a lot of cases than there was with, between them and the British government. I think they were certainly keen to promote this progressive ethos down south when when they were engaging with politicians and community groups. But also, I think one of the things that comes across in in chats with Billy Hutchinson was how surprised, perhaps, they were when they went out to America for the first time to talk to Irish America, that not all the Irish Americans were Sinn Féin lovers or Provo lovers or whatever you want to call them. And actually, in fact, it was 
easier than they had anticipated to encourage these guys, maybe direct more of their money into cross-community funding, to engage Protestant and Catholic working-class youth uh, enterprises, that type of thing. So I think from the outset, and I mean, you go back to, I mean, I know it's not specifically about the South, but you go you go back to Gusty Spencer's relationship with uh, Cardinal O'Fee, and they had become really good friends. I think when Cardinal O'Fee was then visiting some of the Republican prisoners, him and Gusty struck up a friendship which endured. And I think when people find common ground in certain things, whether it be talking about football or talking about horse racing or this, that, and the other, it makes the heavier stuff easier to talk about because once you establish a bond, it makes uncomfortable conversations easier to have because you've established a human relationship first. And I think certainly people like David Irvine and Billy Hutchinson were able to do that down south. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of those dynamics with people like Dick Spring and Albert Reynolds and, you know, later Bernie Ahern. But certainly in the early days before 1998, I've heard nothing but good things about the perception of what the thinking was down south and the openness of Farage people toward these guys. And also, I mean, I remember recently being challenged by somebody, it seems to be an occupational hazard on Twitter, but being challenged by somebody about Marion being the publisher for myself and Billy's book. Uh, and it was actually a guy from a Republican background. And he said, oh, so uh, happy enough to go with the uh, uh, Irish publisher. And I went back and said, yes, they're, they're one of the best publishers in Ireland. So don't see what the problem would be. But I think people are so keen to pigeonhole people in the boxes and just sort of shut them off to, to wherever they want them to be. But one of, one of the things I find is that human beings are certainly more complex than, than you give them credit for. And when you sit down with people, you find out a lot more about them than if you just you know, sit and read about them in a newspaper and make your mind up about who they are. And I think that's certainly the case when there were interactions with Dublin, that there was a lot of common ground in terms of ordinary working class issues. Well, it was one of those strange things following events at that time in the, the mid to late 90s where a lot of the loyalist spokesmen who are the representatives of organizations who have done appalling things mm-hmm. seem less sectarian than DUP politicians who claim to be nonviolent and claim to abhor loyalist violence. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll not name the person for obvious reasons, but I've told this story before. The only time I've ever been made to feel uncomfortable in a, in a research interview was by somebody in the DUP while I was doing my PhD research back in the mid-bodies. This person asked me to turn the tape recorder off and asked me, was I afraid to be there because I was a Catholic? And I explained that no, it was because it was the first research interview I'd done for about two or three years, so it was just a bit nervous, kind of fighting my feet again. I remember actually the first time I met David Irvine, who although I knew David Irvine from the TV and he was he was you know always in the in the media and seemed like a, a friendly guy, it was still quite intimidating for me as a Catholic from North Belfast to go into the DUP office on, on Newtonard Road. And one of the first things I said to him was like, "I just want you to know I'm I'm Catholic," and he said, "Why does that matter?" And I, I, I mean, I'm going to be honest here. There, I've never once. In all the times I've been talking to people with paramilitary backgrounds, people who've killed, people who've been involved in, as you say, the most horrendous activities and 
murders and all sorts of maimings, all sorts of stuff. None of them have shown any sectarianism towards me. I've been brought into pubs in the Shankill, where I'm sure very few Catholics have ever been, or people from Catholic backgrounds. And I've been openly introduced as a Catholic, as a friend, as somebody who is dead on. And, you know, that, I think, comes from that bitter experience of going to jail, having time to think about things. Whereas politicians, people like DUP personnel, and again, I wouldn't say that about all DUP. I know a lot of people in DUP who I'm very friendly with, and, you know, I wouldn't judge them all. But if you're, if you're talking about that 90s period, yeah, certainly, if you'd asked me who I wanted to talk to in a room, would it be David Irvine and Billy Hutchinson or some of these like people like, well, I'm thinking people who are close, maybe, I'm not sure how to phrase this, but people who share platforms with people like Billy Wright. I'd certainly go for people like David Irvine and Billy Hutchinson every time because they definitely seem to be wanting a future where me, my mom and dad, brother, my family could feel comfortable, you know, so, and, and they were having those difficult conversations and putting themselves out there, whereas the others were just ranting and raving and sort of going back on the same old rhetoric that they'd been peddling in the early 1970s, 1960s, 1950s. So, yeah, it, it, it is a strange one. And I, I mean, I've often thought that myself, that here you have guys who were convicted of, of uh, terrible, terrible deeds, who were actually more liberal-minded and, and open to uh, moving things forward than, than people who pointed the finger at, at those very people. So, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I guess we're coming to the end now, but we can't really leave yep. this topic without talking about collusion because yeah. when we will post this on the internet and uh, people of Republican mindset will immediately say that the loyalists were simply playthings of the British state and of the British military and so on and, and the RUC and that yeah. uh, they were proxy forces. Basically, uh, collusion did happen. There's empirical evidence to show that it did happen. I think it happened uh, across the board, obviously, probably not so much on the Republican side, but... I think one of the tragedies of, of Northern Ireland and, and the, the conflict here, it goes back to David Irvine talking about it being a dirty, stinking little war, is that probably the main war here was between MI5 and Special Branch um, in a lot of cases, and, and maybe a lot of people were having their strings pulled. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I talked to a guy who was involved with the UDA in the Craigie Estate as a teenager in the early 70s. He was involved in putting my mother-in-law, now mother-in-law, into the Craigie estate and had interesting conversations around that in, in the last couple of years. He was one of the gunmen at, at Tommy Heron's funeral um, when they did the show of strength. Apropos of absolutely nothing, one evening we were just talking, not talking about collusion or anything, but he brought this up. He said, look, we were all, our strings were pulled like puppets. I think uh, that's my belief, is what he said. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I think by concentrating on collusion, and someone who'd be better to talk about this would be somebody like Ian Turner, who does the Polyclaw Street blog, and he's doing a book at the moment. He's researching for a book about the military side of the UVF and Red Hand Commando. But really, one of the frustrations of, of the UVF, I've talked to two people, both who have held a position of chief of staff at, at various stages. And they have both said that they feel frustrated that 
there is a narrative emerging that they could not do anything without the help of the British state. It only takes a person to read somebody like Plum Smith, Plum Smith's autobiography, where he talks about the weapons that the Red Hand Commando were using in 1971-72 as being like relics from World War One Museum. A lot of the early weapons in the conflict were bought by gun dealers, gun clubs were set up. One of the things that re-emerges in the Loyalist News, John McCaig's paper, is that there's advertisements for gun clubs, guys being asked to join gun clubs and this type of thing. So certainly collusion is something that happened. There's no doubt about it. I don't have the authority to speak about it. I don't have the knowledge. Because really at that period that, I, that I'm most interested in up to sort of 1973 really, which is my in RAF expertise, I don't think it was as endemic as it would later become. But certainly collusion has had a a rotten effect on, on society in the North here, uh, whether it be collusion with the UVF or UDA or Republicans like the IRA. And you see stuff like uh, steak knife and, and that type of thing. It, 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 it shows that a lot of the... And I don't think we... You know, this is stuff that might come out if it ever comes out, it'll come out long after we're all passed on. The guys in the background in, in Whitehall and in Deepfall and things like that who were who were pulling the strings. And look, I'm not I, I don't want I don't like conspiracy theories, but I certainly think you can't discount collusion as a narrative and obviously many people have lost their lives due to the actions of people who are involved in collusion. But the dismiss Loyalist paramilitaries as as dupes of the British state as a sort of uh, unthinking zombies who were manipulated by faceless men is is in my opinion a complete distortion of what really happened in the north during the conflict. Garrett, thank you very much. We really appreciate you coming on. And if any of the listeners would want to get Garrett's book, it's Tartan Gangs and Paramilitaries. Uh, you can follow his blog on gmulvena.wordpress.com. And also to check out, as Garrett mentioned there, his podcast, Hidden Histories of the Northern Ireland Troubles. There's some really interesting episodes on there and I've enjoyed listening to quite a few of them myself. So if you'd like to listen back to this or any of the previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>